You never know. Yeah, or yeah, well, Lord deliver us, we pray. Um <laughs> Oh boy. All good stuff. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. How you feeling, George? You're on mute. We can't hear. How's that? You don't want to hear me. Thank you. Yeah? Your wife's doing I got your wife. How you feeling, Dan? She's she a little worse than I am, but we're I think I hopefully we're on the other side of it. In fact, I said we're just going to be exhausted for two weeks, and so far, indication we are. Oh gosh! Thanks for your prayers. We got we got our six year old with us. That's the big challenge now. Mm. You think she's sick or no? Not yet. We're taking her for a test tomorrow. Okay. Well, I think they should fourteen days to seven days now. It can be seven days, not 14 days anymore. Yeah, well, the Yeah, yeah. The infectious disease doctor today told us to sit tight until the 18th. Yeah, 10 days. That just so happens to be after the finals, too. <laughs> no, I have to take the final. That's not how it works. No. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to take the final. No, I have to create something around here. Oh, that's funny. How many courses do you guys have next semester? The same two or three courses with the typical? Two yeah, two, two classes plus the thesis course. Oh, okay. Okay, wow. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those things not pleasantly. Well, they're not pleasantly. <laughs> oh, gosh. Father, since you have to grade so many tests, I guess the question I would have, and I think maybe yeah. some of too. So we want a double space and about a 12-point type, somebody suggested. Does that sound right or no? That sounds right to me. Okay, and then so with respect to each of the two essays, what would be the range of, you know, I don't want to say words, let me say yeah. pages, but not, you know. I'm at six pages for the first one. Um, who, said, who, said, who said that? <laughs> <laughs> that was Jim Meehan, I think. You're going to fail, Chris, that's the case, right? <laughs> Let's shoot him right now. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, really a page, double space, both font, you can answer the question. Um, even with, even with definitions, give me like a two sentence. Two sentence. Two sentence. Two sentence. Whatever. Answer. Answer the questions. All I'm asking you to do. Yeah. Where's my babe? Babe? Listen. What's the good father is saying? Very well. Two sentences. Listen. Father, we are we are type A graduate students. You can't say two sentences. It's too late. Two definitions. Definitions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very complete in my definitions. He's Father Chris, not Father O'Reilly. My my bigger concern, in all seriousness, is you're able to give a definition in your own words to be able to know what the definition is. All right. So appreciate. You said definition, so, not explanation. Thank you. Well, I mean, don't give me you know just a couple of words, but right. just answer with the 
answer it with the questions asking. That's very helpful. Okay. Okay. So definition is a definition. It's not like your own words. Very helpful. Well, I mean, that's true, but but um, yeah, give me definitions that that are what the church teaches or what I taught you guys in class. But then be able to explain it in your own language to somebody in else. In two sentences. Get the simply well, in in brevity's brevity's good because people are not gonna listen to you drone on about something. So we're gonna see you tonight. Yeah. We haven't had homiletics yet, so <laughs> Yeah, well yeah, hang on a second, whose phone is that? They cut out homiletics for us. You're not We've getting hom you're, you're not getting you're not getting homiletics homiletics. Like ask your pastor. Pastor is the one that will give you homiletics. No, no, we do it in our formation. We do it every month. Well, that's good for you. I mean, we don't, but um, fortunately, my pastor has done that for me. Yeah. You guys are yeah, lucky. Have, you guys are lucky. We have to prepare and deliver a homily to each other every month. That's awesome. That's awesome. We don't yeah, do that. Good. I've only seen a, de seen a deacon give a homily twice in my life. Really? Yep. And neither time was it in my own parish. Wow. Not in Wishwood. Yeah, we have deacons that give it every Sunday. Yeah. Right. Deacon Frank. Deacon Frank gave a homily at the seminary. Yeah, once. I've been Wishwood Diocese. You're the Sunday, next Sunday. No, you're the Saturday. The following Sunday. All right. You start, yeah. All right. What do we get started? A homily for next month is on homologous artificial insemination. Yeah. We, <laughs> oh man, that'll bore them to death. Please. Delayed homogenization. That will kill them in the in the pews. Forget it. Moralism. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. We should pray for sure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Seed of wisdom, pray for us. Pray for us. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. This is it. Last go around, gents. This is very upsetting for all of you. It's great um, trial, emotionally disturbing, but I try to get through it if you can tonight. Um, <laughs> so... Left off last, we talked about the, the common good. The common good covers a tremendous number of, of topics. What I'm going to do tonight is begin with one of the things that I know interests a lot of you uh, across the board here. And one of the main issues of the common good in a society is proper punishment of criminals. How do we handle the issues of crime and punishment in a just society, particularly as it a, as a regards capital punishment, death penalty? So... Understand that it's going to go back to the very beginning of the church's history. Until very recently, the church always gave some validation to the use of capital punishment. It began in the very early church. Every church father unanimously supported capital punishment. Two of them did not, though. Tertullian, who died in schism with the church, he doesn't count, and Lactantius. Lactantius simply said that Christians should not support it, but the state could still enforce it. So for the most part, across the board, they all defended it. Now, what they used as justification of this 
was in, the, in that time period. Awesome. In that. A king, an emperor, a magistrate gets their power derivatively from, from God. So because of that, the power of executing criminals, carrying out sentences, all of that kind of thing was consistent with the belief in kind of the divine right of kings. Additionally, in Romans chapter 13, St. Paul writes that the magistrate is given the sword for a reason, kind of enforcing that idea from his bones. That's Jim uh, calling Father. I'm in a classroom setting here, and my teacher's phone is left in the room going off. So, sorry about that. Probably the person looking for the phone. Probably, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the magistrate, the idea is the magistrate exercises what the power of God would come from. In some way, Jesus himself says this. At his trial before Pilate, Pilate says to him, don't you realize I have power to execute you or to free you? And our Lord's response is, you have no power over me if not given to you from above. Which kind of indicates even the Lord using his time period reference of like the magistrate, the king, the procurator shares in the power that comes from God. So it makes sense that church fathers would have agreed wholeheartedly with the idea of capital punishment being just. As time went on, this is kind of the way it was. In the year 1210, there was an a situation with a group of the Waldensians, and the Waldensians were a schismatic group. When they came back into the church with Rome, Rome demanded they accept capital punishment as a teaching that they must adhere to. So even to the extent of making it an issue of, you know, communion with Rome, I thought it was serious this was. Thomas Aquinas talks about it as well. Thomas Aquinas you know, talks about the reality of we have a just society where criminals are taken care of, people are kept safe, capital punishment is a necessary element of this. Now remember, in this time period, there were no real prisons, no real penal system. So the only way to deal with harsh criminals was execution. And it was done wholeheartedly across the entire world at this point. The church, ecclesiastical courts did this. It was kind of part of the course. Now, what happens is as the years go on, as the enlightenment takes place, the idea of the king, the emperor, the magistrate as coming from God and the authority of God begins to fall apart. Because really, these are men, men and women who are, who are you know, fallacies and their faults and failings. So really, we can't say that their authority is derived strictly or at all from God. In the American experience, part of calling the president Mr. President, not your excellency, not your lordship, was a way of breaking that idea of the president is not a magistrate. The president is simply a person who is elected by the people and serves them. So that is where a lot of this comes from. In recent years, especially, there has been this real uneasiness with capital punishment. The experience of the 20th century 
which was horrible on a variety of levels. That experience really impacted how the church views this. We saw wholesale, across the board, the murder systematically of millions of people at the hands of governments. And it made us properly very, very uneasy. So John Paul II, in the, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1892, he says this. He writes, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude the possibility of capital punishment, presupposing the full ascertainment, identity, and responsibility of the offender, but only practicable way to defend the lives of human beings effectively against the aggressor. So what he's saying here is really, it's really not very common, shouldn't be used at all. Three years later, in Evangelium Vitae, he ups the ante one more. And JP2 says, today in fact, given the means at the state's disposal to effectively repress crime by rendering inoffensive the one who has committed it, but depriving him definitively the possibility of redeeming himself, cases of absolute necessity the suppression of the offender today are very rare, if not practically non-existent. John Paul II is essentially saying there, listen, capital punishment, it doesn't make it, you can't, you, you just can't, you can't justify it really. So even as far as 20 years ago, the church is already changing or evolving its teaching to prohibit capital punishment being used by the state. So we see the kind of this evolution of teaching. As we know, Pope Francis, just two years ago, changed the catechism again to more fully reflect what John Paul II said, Evangelium Vitae. Francis wrote this, consequently, the church teaches in light of the gospel that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, and she works with determination for its abolition worldwide. It's the new section of the Catechism on Capital Punishment. More recently, two months ago, Vitelli Tutti, Francis said even stronger that we should work as a society, as Catholics, to abolish it, not to defend it, but to work for its abolition across the world. So the church now has this fuller teaching where we see that capital punishment is an offense against human dignity and human life. Remember, dignity is not something we gain or we lose. Through sin, especially through sin, we act beneath our dignity. We don't lose our dignity, which is a very important distinction that we have to make here. Additionally, Capital punishment removes the possibility of conversion, that a person could have a conversion experience. We never want to, to uh, assume that because a person has done heinous things in the past, there's no chance of them having redemption now. One of the real interesting cases of this, and it, and it kind of pushes the mercy of God to its absolute maximum limit, has a man named Rudolf Haas. Rudolf Haas was a commandant at Auschwitz for three years. Two million people in this time period went to the gas chambers and he was head of Auschwitz. For a while, he had an affair, one of the, uh, one of the inmates at Auschwitz. 
it was discovered, get her killed. So it's a real rotten character, person of real evil. He's arrested after the war is over, and he's tried, found guilty of war crimes, and was convinced, was convinced of the rightness of the cause of the Nazis. Before he dies, about 10 days before he dies, he has this major, like, radical conversion experience. He writes to his wife, he writes to the country, he was wrong, it's just terrible, he, he's, he's horrified this happened. A priest comes, visits him, hears his confession, anoints him, gives him communion, and he's hung the next day. Wow. Now, God's mercy, yeah. now, is he in heaven? I'm not going to go there. But purgatory? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely a possibility. But he's a guy who, for all purposes, should be in hell. What he did, right? I mean, just the, the horror of what he presided over. However, possibility for conversion was still there up until the moment before he died. So two weeks before, he has this conversion experience, his life is turned around, and he's hung two weeks later. But before that, he has this moment of return to the church, the sacraments, the faith. So listen, you, you never know when someone might have that experience of turning their heart back to God. And if we say that a person is beyond redemption, we lose the sense of what it means to be a Christian. Because mm -hmm. we say that Christ's sacrifice, we, we tell the kids all the time, there's no sin that God can't forgive. Paul says, as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So if we live under this idea that a person is incapable of conversion, or is so far gone they can't, we lose a major element of what it means to be a believer. Very, very important. Additionally, one of the great tragedies is we know there have been several people executed who were innocent. I mean, that's, that's a horror across the board. So there are a lot of things that, that argue against it. I think Francis is correct in, um, in his teaching about this. And, and we have the level of doctrine by putting it in the catechism. Um, and it really is a, um, an appropriate evolution of the teaching about capital punishment. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now. Questions, comments? Yeah, yeah, Father, I um, I was a prosecutor for a long time, um, 20 years ago. And in 1981, there was a serial killer up at um, Stormville in um, one of the state facilities who was doing a life sentence who killed a female correction officer who'd been working there for a month. And she had three small children. And it brought a lot of people back to revisiting this question because uh, there's also cases, you know, they're very rare and I'm not supporting the death penalty, but I'm just pointing out that there are some arguments to be made still, which we're going to have to address. And one would be, you know, what is the um, what is the disincentive for someone serving a life sentence without possibility of parole for being convicted of being a serial killer? What is the punishment for him for killing someone else in prison, whether it be another inmate or a guard? Mm -hmm. You know, it's an open-ended question. There yeah. is no answer. Well, Francis kind of does touch on this a little bit, and we're telling you, talks about 
the idea of life without parole as kind of like a like a, like a yeah, virtual death sentence, a penalty. So the idea is, does that idea, life without parole, serve a purpose? In your case, dog, you know, it be a case like that. And the reality is this: look, I mean, I don't think that a person who's a serial killer is going to get out of prison anytime soon, even with parole being being offered and then every twenty-five, every whatever it might be. In fact, Berkowitz, son of Sam, his situation. So Berkowitz, you know, of course, was uh, son of Sam, killed six people, wounded ten other people, and um, twenty-three years, no, thirty-two years, thirty-three years ago, had a major conversion, born again Christian, model prisoner since then. In 2002, he asked Governor Pataki to not allow him to be paroled, ever. And the state vetoed or voted that down, so no, we're gonna, as part of their legal system, we can't say no one, one prisoner. So every two years now, Berkowitz is up for parole. He's never getting out. So, but the fact of the matter is, the possibility of having that may serve as a little bit of an incentive for somebody to not commit a crime of that nature. You know, I worked when I was in college. I helped out at Mount McGregor Correctional Facility, which is in Wilton, New York. Minimum security, drugs, gangs, stuff of that nature. And I remember when we were helping out do ministry up there, they told us, listen, fellas, remember, like, you're here, they go into this prayer group thing. Some are there because it's a prayer group. Some because it gets them out of the cell for half an hour, 40 minutes. If they ask you to take anything with you, or bring anything in, obviously you can't do that. And remember, they're here you know, for a reason. So be careful in how you go about this. And I think that you have to be very attentive to those criminals, those people that are, that are at a greater risk of, of attacking a correctional officer or making a shit out of something and then you'll know, hurting or killing somebody. That, that kind of speaks to um, some of the challenges that I think we're gonna face as we move forward here. But um, there are, you know, solitary confinement, uh, 23 hours a day in a prison cell. And that's also kind of rough. But the reality is, like, we, it, balancing is difficult. There's no question about it. And I don't know um, the exact policy ways of doing it. What I do know is that taking someone's life at the hands of the state is something that is very troubling and problematic on a variety of levels. And that's, that's the bigger issue here. The other questions that come from that, that stem from that, I think, are are good questions to be asked. And we, there's spectrum here. How you have it better, best to answer those? But the principle of of the dignity of life has to always be what kind of governs our decision making process here, Doug. But I do understand how when that kind of thing happens, it does send a bit of a shockwave through those who are who are um, involved in corrections and in, in the criminal justice system. Um, what you just said, Father, is actually what brought me around over all the years to where I am now, and that is under no circumstances, because of the dignity of the human life and because mm-hmm. we're made in the image and likeness of God, we're, we're, we should not be in the business of deciding who lives and who dies. Right. So, I mean, that's I'm very comfortable with that. I, I was only pointing out that, you know, certainly in my own life and I think other people out there in the population that we might be dealing with, you know, they're going to have some statements or arguments that might at times be difficult to kind of um, counsel them. Right. 
definitely. I agree. Paulie has amazing. Like, for example, the husband of this corrections uh, officer who's now raising three children. I mean, you know, his obvious response is, what's this guy? You know, he's, he's already been convicted of, of serial killing. And now look what happened. And again, like you said, I mean, we have to we have to pray and 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 be um, be present for them. So that's really the yeah. key. Can I speak to this? Too? Also, isn't there a situation where a person who is of a higher risk could be put in a different kind of part of the prison where they're less likely to, in, to interact with the other inmates in Gen Pop? I know they did it with with um, with criminals who um, have attacked or or raped children. For their own safety, they're oftentimes put in a different part of the prison because even prisoners, um, when they hear that a person is there for abusing a child, um, even they're like so horrified by that uh, that evil, they'll go after them in prison. So that poses its own, you know, kind of issue. But Paul, we really had to go on. It was just a question, Father, yeah. and, and I understand the evolution of the thought on on capital punishment and it makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm in accord with all of that 100%. But my question is this, has there ever been another instance where a teaching set forth in our catechism has been reversed? Well, it's important to realize, Paul, it's not a reversal of what the catechism says. It's an evolution of what the catechism says. You know, the whole reason for a catechism that came out in 1992, and you had one already, was to update some of the things that had been in there. Uh, some of what Vatican II teaches were updates, were evolutions of what the church had taught for you know many centuries. But as a matter of, over time, these things developed. It wasn't a matter of all of this being this black to white, you know, uh, light darkness kind of switch here. So that's maybe what is the confusion, Brad. Go ahead, to your... It just, I understand that it's an evolution, but it seems like the result of that evolution is a, a, a total opposite result from what had been there previously. And that's fine if that's the evolutionary process and it takes you to, to a reversal, yeah. which I well, think it might happen. But I, I'm just curious if, if there are other examples of that in, in that you know of maybe not off the top of your head over over the history of the catechism where where as a as a result of evolution the catechism now teaches something contrary to what it had taught in the past it's just yeah. a question good question you know one of the things that i would think of off the top of my head kind of i'm thinking about this question is the whole idea of there is no salvation outside the church uh-huh yeah. 50 years ago that meant like if you're not a catholic you go to hell yes right that's no longer believed to be the case. So our, our belief is that the Catholic Church is the Church Jesus Christ founded. That is, I, what I believe, obviously, is that that's true. However, it does not mean that a person who's a Protestant or even anything else in good faith could not be saved. Right. It's important that we have that we have a sense of that distinction when it comes to the fact that over time there is a nuance of of teaching. That can in fact happen as we kind of, but also remember a lot of the capital punishment stuff, Paul, and with Thomas Aquinas and Fathers of the Church, had to do with the absence of a strong penal system right. to properly take care of criminals. That's where I think a lot of the confusion um, may come in. But it's not a reversal; it's more a matter of example evolution. There are examples, I'm sure, more than I'm thinking about off my head, um, like that. Right. Would you want a comment to make, or yeah, Father? Uh, I mean. Isn't the dignity of life and the sanctity of life the same thing for abortion as it is for the death penalty? Isn't it a parallel? There is a little nuance. 
And the little nuance is that in the case of the of euthanasia, abortion especially, we're talking about an innocent. Right. However, it's still a life. Right. But there is, there is, but there is a nuance there. And I mean, that's why it's, you know, so we have to kind of have a little bit of a, of a, of a change. Because in fact, the fifth commandment does not proscribe all killing. The commandment is not, thou shalt not kill. Murder. In the Hebrew, thou shalt not murder. And murder is the, un, is the, is the, is the killing of the innocent, which is always, always evil. So um, that's a little bit of a nuance. However, it does not, not um, take away from the person's inherent dignity um, in the end, which does cause, but the pose important distinction. So, so Father, if, if that, well, I believe that, of course, and I, I'm not a fan of capital punishment, but if you are saying the innocent, then what about the stats that say in Illinois, it was George Dillamore's stat, but I mean, it was upwards of 50%. Have been exon- I mean, it's huge numbers are being exonerated off the death road by poor prosecution. I work in prison ministry at Gardner Prison when it's open, and I can tell you that the one thing you see immediately is there's a demographic, racial, and educational and mental health dynamic that leads to a propensity of the people that are there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, well, just uh, you, it, with, with an imperfect system, which it is, um, how can you possibly, I and mean, what is that one innocent that gets put to death for every you know hundred that are guilty, which I think is far from the the real stats, is that does that justify? Is that a, does that does that invalidate the whole process or be an acceptable loss? Well, it's a matter of no, it's not acceptable at all. That one person is still one person, and mm-hmm. other ways again, it's not a matter Chris, of having no no um, opportunity for punishment. There is a punishment going on here, obviously. Yeah, that one person who is innocent. And put to death. That's you know that's a serious enough situation. But the issue you're talking about with the racial disparity as well as the educational disparity, that goes back to talking about last week about the whole idea of the family, and that you know seventy percent of those men in prison are in prison because they don't they have, there's no fathers involved in the picture. So it's a bigger issue yep. systemically across those demographics. Other comments or or questions about this? Can I ask a question? Yeah, okay, Dr. Yeah, sure. Hmm? Um, so over the weekend, um, I was on call and uh, was called in at four o'clock in the morning uh, yesterday about a gunshot wound for a patient um, that I had to take care of, which I did. Um, unfortunately, I didn't know before that uh, this person who had the gunshot wound uh, had killed two people and shot a child. Um, unfortunately, the child survived. Uh, the two people that he shot did not. Um, I just, I guess, you know, I get it. I mean, I do my job. I don't ask questions. Um, the morality of this whole situation is, is that... Um, it's a little weird that, you know, you're, you know, taking care of patients that, um, you know, have morally killed people, shot a kid. And um, I just, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. Well, in some cases, as you know, Anthony, obviously you, you don't deny 
medical care to those who have done criminal criminal things. And now it may be better you, you know that until, until later on afterwards, after treating for the person, um, you know, for the gunshots. But yeah, I mean, look, that's yeah, that is that's a tough one. There's no question about it. And um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, can, I, can I jump in? Doesn't, yeah, yeah, George, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a bunch of things I've wanted to say, but I'll just I just want to address this because I th yeah. I, I think. You know, one of the things we have to be really careful of is when when we talk about caring for people, treating for people, um, I, I think it's a mistake for us to look at the severity of the crime because that was never the judge in church history as to whether or not someone should receive the death penalty or not. I'll give you a perfect example of that. When I worked for abolition in Connecticut in 2012, we had a state attorney um, the chief state attorney, who's a good friend of mine, and he made the fatal mistake of getting up in front of the legislature and saying, you know, we have to make a bright line distinction between serious, horrible murders and garden variety murders. And I knew the second that he said that, that was the end of the credibility that he had, because all the family victim members in the group jumped up and said, wait a second. Are you telling me that because my husband was only shot twice and somebody else's husband was slaughtered and had his throat cut and then was shot again, that their, their life is more valuable than my husband's life? We make the distinction, I think, mistakenly on putting the value of certain lives higher than the value of other lives. And this goes right back to the whole theme of this class, I think. That every life is dignified. Every life has value. It doesn't make any difference what you did because the bottom line is we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done in our entire life. And once we start moving off that premise, we're starting to get into that slippery slope, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I, I fought for years. I've been in law enforcement for 35 years. I was one of the most staunch supporters of the death penalty. And what changed my mind in the end, and everybody asked, well, what, when was it that you changed your mind? It was a process for me, and my faith had a lot to do with it. But, but the one group of people that changed my mind in the very end when I said, I'm done with this death penalty stuff, were the surviving family victim members who said, I was promised by this criminal justice system that when my daughter's murderer was going to be executed, that I was going to feel better that I was going to get over this, that that would be the end, that that would be just the thing, that the, the gates of heaven would open up and I'd be fully healed and everything would go away. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. There is no way you can justify killing another person saying it's going to make you feel better. I think it's an insult to victims and surviving family victim members when we say something like that to them, and I'm as guilty of it in the beginning as the first when I did investigations. Don't worry, we're going to get this bastard and we're going to fry him. I thought that was supposed to make them feel better until I had victims coming up to me and saying, how dare you insult me by mm -hmm. making me believe that this system of justice that's going to drag out for 30 years in the end is going to make me feel better because somebody is killed. It's just not right. Well, I think everybody's different. I mean, some people, victims, want satisfaction or justice. They they want the killer to suffer for what they did. 
I'm not saying it's right. I'm against capital punishment. But to say that all victims feel that way is not true. It is true because I've done the research on it. There are some, and I'll tell you, all of them initially will tell you, yeah, I wanted the guy dead. Yeah, I wanted revenge myself. If they left it up to me, I would have taken care of it myself. But I'm telling you right now that people that that go through that horror and that agony of 10, 15, 20 years of waiting for somebody to be executed so they can feel better, it doesn't work. Well, I agree with you. But they think it would. They think it would make them feel better. But like you said, vengeance does not replace the lost life or make your life better. Forgiveness does. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't think like that. And they um, even I think matter of, of realizing that the initial, the initial uh, anger, grief, the flower that, that that brings, there is a, an immediate desire for vengeance. Right. And I think it's important for us as men of the church, as deacons and priests, to help people work beyond that and say vengeance, revenge is not going to bring this person back. It's not going to end your suffering. It's not going to. So there are ways about how we could be able to handle this in, in a certain kind of context. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Bob. I think the best example we have is about 10, 12 years ago in Amish country. Remember when the guy went out oh, yeah. on the street and what the fuck to do? Forgive him, forgive him. I think in situations like this, God gives us examples to teach us. Yeah, no, it's true. And if you remember, the, the Amish people actually made dinner that night for the wife of the person who killed their children that's what was that's like that that's whew, you know yes but as intense but you know it's, it's a matter of of um realizing that, that vengeance revenge is never going to bring the person back no. at the same time i understand what anthony is saying and if there's, there's a human element of saying here two people are dead this guy killed them. I had helped the person to get better. Not that it makes life any any different, but I understand. That's a guys to understand. Let me start justifying it. If the un, we have to understand the very beginning of this in this course as you go forward. Now, people act emotionally. People respond emotionally. If we don't meet them to understand that reaction, if our first reaction is to kind of quickly shoot back at them, we've already lost the argument. The thing is, I can never put myself in Anthony's place. The thing is, this situation is unique in that he is a doctor. That's number one. He took a hold. Number two, he already convicted the man before he went to to trial. It's not right. The point point of all of it is, I think it's in general, whether it be the treatment of of a person who has done a terrible crime, whether it be our ministering to them, it doesn't, it doesn't, we have to always be be, have to be sensitive to meeting people where they're at in their own experiences. To say it in a per, to a person, I get it, I understand where you're coming from with that, I see what you're saying, it's a good way to start a conversation. Because if they think that you're not going to even listen to them, whether it's marital ethics, whether it's the person in the hospital bed, whose mother was dying after having had a stroke, whatever it is, whatever it is, if empathy and compassion do not become the hallmark of our ministry, we have already failed in what we're trying to accomplish. Meeting a person where they are at. Because gentlemen, as you know, most of our people aren't there. Mm. Most of them are somewhere way out. And if our first reaction is gonna be, well, 
you aren't here, you're all here, then you know what? Forget it. Wash your hands of it. Then we're probably lost. Why bother? Why even, why even bother if that's the case? Mm. All right? So it's important for us to understand that if people are by nature emotional, they're going to react emotionally to things. And sometimes all you have to do is listen to them. There is a great uh, pastoral element in shutting up and listening. Because sometimes them just vocalizing what is bothering them is a major element of, cathar of catharsis they need. So it's really important that we're sensitive, whatever the case may be, uh, to that reality. Isn't that what psychiatrists do for a living? They don't talk, they just listen. Yeah, and they do pretty well. How do you feel? How does that make you? But Peter, a lot, of, a, lot of, but a lot of it, a lot of psychiatry is asking the right questions. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and being able to help them bring out what's, bought, what's going on in their experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, even like pastoral counseling, which is not psychology, or I'm not a psychologist, I don't have a degree or anything. But there is an element to that. It's kind of listening, listening, and then affirming, challenging, when the case, you know, whatever the case may be, but doing it in a pastoral, sensitive way that meets them where they're at. And if we do that, gents, we're going to go a long way in being able to bring folks back to the church or help them to stay in the church. So that's that's um, important. This is a really, this is a really, a really hot button issue and a challenging issue. So it's important for us to understand when, you know, even if, even if somebody comes to us, let's say we give a homily at the parish on a Sunday afternoon or whatever, and mention capital punishment as being, you know, this is, is wrong, always wrong. You, you can bet, you can bet you're going to be challenged after Mass. So the question becomes, okay, how are you going to handle that when the challenge comes? And that becomes that becomes something which is pastorally very very important for us and how to handle when you are challenged and they will challenge you, believe me. And after mass, the worst. At mass, the drive-by, you know, you're greeting hundreds of people, shaking hands, have a good day, Father. Have a good, have a good Sunday, Father. Boston. Yeah. Rosen. Do you know what? Uh, I can't answer right now. Uh, Call the directory, make an appointment, and we will talk about this some point in the future. So, yeah. Father, can I, can I show a picture here and then read the prayer that's on the back of it? Sure, please. please do. This was uh, the drawing done by an inmate on death row at uh, Angola in Louisiana. And the Catholic chaplain wrote this prayer, which is on the back of the card. It says, Lord, you who do not condemn those who are already condemned, who do not dodge those who are already avoided, who do not despise those who are already despised, who forgive those who are not forgiven, who do not add pain to those who already suffer, Listen to the sigh of the prisoner and free those condemned to death. Be the good friend of anyone deprived of freedom. Sweeten the hearts of the jailers. Reconcile those who sinned with those who suffered. You who freed the apostle Peter, make everyone a prisoner only of love and forgiveness. Amen.
Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, forgiveness is the fastest way to peace. It really is. Holding on to the grudges. You know, I've heard someone say once, and it struck me as being profound, that unforgiveness is drinking poison, hoping somebody else dies. So all it does is become toxic to you. So, all right. Any other comments before you move on to the next topic tonight? Good yeah, question, Father. Ahead. John, sure. Okay, so you don't want to kill the guy. I'm all right with that. Well, then where do you start setting the bar for the type of, maybe this is the wrong analogy, but when you go ordinary, extraordinary, mm-hmm. I mean, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, water, and but yet we, we our prison systems, and I could be wrong because I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I only know what I, what I watch on television or see on the news. They have a, they're given a lot of rights within the prison. So then how do we as Christians just stay out or stay out of that whole meeting out of other justice that they might have? Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I mean, there's such cruel and unusual punishment too, right? Right. You know, we, well, we, yeah. we're only talking about death. But, well, I mean, that's the deprivation of, deprivation of life. So, I mean, it's not, that, that's not, you know, a small thing, John, to... No, and I'm, I'm not minimizing it, but there's a whole other aspect of it. Where does that well, fit into our... But, you know, in some ways, in some ways, though, what you're saying almost validates the point against capital punishment. Because the reality is a person who's spending 25, 30, 40, 50 years in prison, and yeah, they may have, you know, certain things they can do, certain things they may be able to have access to, well, listen, man, I wouldn't want to change my position in life with theirs living no. with uh, at time comes over, you know? So I think the matter is those criminals who are have done particularly heinous things, and there are some that have done things that are still beyond the pale. You mentioned it in place society and play company is is um make Richard Blanche. But the reality is that they have to be able to make sure that they can't hurt anybody in the prison, as Doug mentioned before. And even have them in a separate part of the prison. But I mean, once we begin to have them deprived of their basic rights, then we begin to have a challenge, have a bit of a problem here. They can't vote. They can't have other things that are part of the part of the American experience. We do that, we do that right wing in prison. I mean, I mean, again, it's not exactly a uh, a positive experience for anybody who goes there, but. Um, but yeah, again, you know, these are policy questions, and the policy questions are kind of beyond the competency of me or this class, frankly. I, mean, I don't want to get into the. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a person involved in the criminal justice systems. I don't know the the types of punishment, types of of um, of what the rights they're given in prison. But it still it still is the matter that the basic element of does the government have the right to deprive somebody of life? And that becomes the issue. Now, what is important to have a distinction drawn there is when it comes to issues of law enforcement in terms of how a, a cop on the street, how we may have to operate about the um, about months to talk, talk about, about police officers who would shoot and kill. A person who was trying to run from them or whatever the case may be and the argument was well how about shooting a leg or shooting an arm 
Well, that's anybody in law enforcement knows that's that's not how it works. Because you have to aim for the part of the body which is the biggest part you can hit. You don't, you don't, you don't want to miss, first of all. And injuring a person in each on the arm with a knife coming at you, man, it could be any good. So it's it's important that we have a sense of law enforcement and protecting the common good uh, in that situation, you know, as well. Now, at the same time, what Derek Chauvin did, George Floyd, was criminal and was awful. And nobody has ever tried to justify what he did, or should they? So, again, have that is, is, um, is an important distinction. And law enforcement has that right. Now, here's another thing. Violence. Violence is always wrong. The use of force is not. Okay, violence is a pejorative. It's always a negative thing. But the use of force at times is necessary on the part of a person or, in some cases, on the part of the state. Now, Augustine, St. Augustine gives us what has been called the so-called just war theory. Right? Now, Augustine developed this at a time when Rome was being sacked by the Visigoths, when there was the end of the empire, and the barbarians were literally at the gates. And Augustine was saying, you know, how do we be able, how do we, how do we as Christians defend ourselves, defend our country? So he developed the just war theory. In the Catechism, paragraph 2309 lays this out. But tonight, I'm going to go through with you guys, and we'll see some of both. First principle is, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or the community must be lasting, grave, and certain. So it's going to be a serious thing, lasting, grave, and certain damage done to a nation on the part of another other nation. Okay? And again, on Pearl Harbor Day today, December 7th, worth kind of looking at this, uh, perhaps, timely, timely class. Number two, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Diplomacy is always, must be, the first step. Can we diffuse this by diplomacy instead of by force? So... All the means are either ineffective or impractical. Three, there must be a serious prospect of success. If I do this, we're going to win. Fourth, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the ones to be evil to be eliminated. Now, that fourth principle, Pope Francis, again, Fratelli Tutti, talks about this. And Francis says the challenge with that principle, that fourth element of the just war theory, is we have in our possession now weapons that could end civilization in a matter of moments. You know, Carpet bombing of London in World War II was awful. Carpet bombing of Tokyo, when, you know, the nuclear, nuclear um, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Today, their weapons even beyond 
what was thought of then. So if we're going to apply this principle, it depends upon how a nation is going to, going to address that fourth case. Now again, World War II, these principles were easy. They were attacked on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor, right? Ended the war, Japan and Germany. So we had a lasting grave and certain damage. Two, diplomacy. Remember Hitler with uh, Neville Chamberlain at, in um, Munich, right? Didn't work out too well. Third, success. Well, we knew that if we have our soldiers going over there, it's going to be challenging, but the belief that the American war machine could defeat the Axis powers. Fourth, use of, you know, use of arms, again, bombs, stuff of that nature, but it wasn't like we have now. That was pretty much a cut and dry case of this. It works. It's, it's there. Now, the challenge with the current war on terrorism is several of these principles don't quite fit, right? We're not battling a nation here, battling a, a unnamed, unseen enemy. So, for example, take the Iraq war situation, okay? A lot of these things in terms of the initial military intervention in Iraq in 2003, experts said the military intervention will be quick and effective. Problem's gonna be what happens next. What happens next, 17 years, years later, is still nexting, still going on, right? There's no resolution to that yet. So that becomes a problem. When I was in seminary, my comprehensive exams, the question was posed to me in 1994 with the Rwandan the genocide. If the US had intervened in, in Rwanda to help the Tutsis who were being murdered by the Hutus, would this principle, these principles, unseen, unknown enemy, how exactly do you have these principles applied in that case? And that becomes a challenge moving forward into the future because it's not quite as simple, cut and dry, as it was with World War II um, or previous previous military interventions, where the principle could be easily seen and effectively applied. So that becomes part of the challenge that faces us as we move forward here. Okay, questions or comments about that? Good. All right. focuses thus largely on the idea of the inherent dignity of the person. But with the common good though, there also is the reality of the obligations and duties the person has to society as well as the common good, right? The analogy again is a sports team. Each player wants to do exceptionally well himself, get to the Hall of Fame, be known for his amazing ability, but at the same time, his other main goal here is the championship with your team. So you work with the team together for that. Okay, so that's kind of common good. Am I breaking up here? Or am I breaking up? Am I clear? Or nobody? Yes, no, you're going in and out. out. Going in and out? Yes. Let me change my, my connection. Hang on a second, guys. Sorry. 
school has terrible Wi-Fi. I don't know what's going on. Try this, see if it works. Hopefully, it's better. All right, they're coming in. Oh, hang on, they're coming in. Yes, okay, okay, good. Sorry about that. All right, so, so the person operates both for themselves as well as for the good of society. Now, one of the issues here is even parents, sometimes, even the rights of parents are going to be superseded by the good of society. It's how serious this can get. You think about this. If parents are abusive, the government can remove the time period or, you know, for definitely if it's serious enough. We also have the issue right now of going on with uh, parents and vaccinations of children. I mentioned last week how we've seen a spike in the number of measles cases there are because parents are anti-vaxxers, as they say some of them, and are refusing to have their children vaccinated against measles. Now, it is the parents' right to have the kid vaccinated or not. However, it is the school system's right to say whether or not they can go to school without a vaccination. Even Catholic schools do not make exceptions for parents who refuse to have their kids vaccinated against the common, the common diseases or the vaccinations are proven to be effective eliminating so there is that element of the common good in those situations so and now with the with the whole uh coronavirus vaccine um and they'll help to end the uh the pandemic as soon as um it's widely available and uh, we can be able to have this taken care of but there have been abuses though certainly of the government for parents two years ago in England, there was a case where a child had been determined to be brain dead by the hospital. A different doctor and different hospital thought the kid actually showed some signs of life, some signs of possibly not being brain dead. And the boy was not released to go to that hospital, but the doctor was, and the kid just died from being in the hospital without being given any kind of other medical care. Yeah, I'm not a doctor. But that to me seems to be a problem. If parents wanted the kid removed, they could be able to do that. And the, and the hospital told them no. That to me uh, poses some serious issues in terms of parents' rights in those situations. But parents are not absolute in certain situations. The common good is very important when it comes to adjudicating these things properly. All right. Talking about rights, talking about people's you know, dignity and worth, one of the main virtues is the virtue of justice. One of the four cardinal virtues, right? Justice, temperance, prudence, and fortitude. 
and the Catechism defines justice this way. Catechism paragraph 1807 says this. Just listen up in the Catechism later on. Catechism says, Justice is the moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and neighbor. Justice toward God is called the virtue of religion. Justice toward man disposes one to respect the rights of each and to establish in human relationships a harmony that promotes equity with regard to persons and the common good. So justice is giving is their due. That is the basic the basic justice kind of definition. So it's important for us to look at that. Now under the kind of topic of justice, there are two types of justice we look at. The first type of justice is what is called commutative justice. Commutative, C-O-M-M-U-T-A-T-I-V-E. Commutative, C-O-M-M-U-T-A-T-I-V-E. Okay. Now, commutative justice has to do essentially with the interaction between individuals. Commutative justice has to do essentially with the interaction between individuals. Mm-hmm. So in this case, like employer and employee, that kind of, of distinction, the kind of an important element here of and And the idea is if there is some sort of injustice or inequity, restitution would be required. If there is some sort of injustice or inequity, restitution would be required. And when it comes to the issue of looking at this in terms of labor, in terms of work, we speak about the idea that the subjective aspect of labor is the person. The subjective aspect of labor is the person. The objective element is the work itself being done. So the subjective is man, you in person. The objective is the work itself that is being done. The great problem comes, fellows, when the objective element is seen as more important than the subjective element. It's problematic because, again, that that denies the dignity of the person, that the work is more important than the worker. That becomes a major issue. And the profit margins are more important than the person's own well-being major problem you see okay the second element of justice is what's called distributive justice d-i-s-t-r-i-b-u-t-i-v-e distributive justice which is the relationship of society with the individual relationship of society with the individual. One of the principal ways to understand this is the idea of the universal destination of goods. 
one of the principal ways to understand this is the universal destination of goods. This means that although private property, this means that although private property is defended by the church and supported, there is the reality. This means that although private property is defended by the church, there is the reality that the goods of the earth, that the goods of the earth are meant for all. And we cannot hold back from those in need. And we cannot hold back from those in need. The basic necessities of life. Basic necessities of life. Okay. Now, uh, Gaudi Mitzvah, listen to this. What it says Gaudi Mitzvah says this: We must never lose sight of the universal destination of earthly goods. In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can serve as well as himself. Therefore, every man has the right to possess a sufficient amount of the earth's goods for himself and his family. That is section 69, Gaia Mespes. The Catechism in 2402 says this, in the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, master them by labor, and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. Paragraph 2402. Now, in no way, gents, is meant to be a condemnation of private property or worse, endorsement of socialism. Certainly not. Okay. Private property has defended in the book of Genesis. Okay. Humanity is given the earth by God to yield its fruit by working the land. So to simply say that everybody entitled to something, everybody should be receiving some part of the goods of the earth does not mean then that they can't have property at all. That is not the case. John Paul II, in defending private property, writes, in this way, man makes part of the earth his own, precisely the part which he has acquired through work that is the origin of individual property. So we work the land, the part of it is ours, very important principle when it comes to the reality of church's defense of private property. Catechism, paragraph 2404, says this. In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns not merely as exclusive to himself, but, to com but common to others also, 
in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. The ownership of property makes it hold, makes its holder a steward of providence to the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits to others, first of all, his family. Paragraph 2404 of the Catechism. Okay? Now, lest anyone think that the church is endorsing socialism implicitly, John Paul II, who knew it very well, having lived under socialism, writes this. JP2 wrote, Socialism considers the individual person, this is paragraph uh, 13 of Dusimusanus, socialism considers the individual person simply as an element, a molecule in the social organism, so that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the functioning of the socioeconomic mechanism. Socialism likewise maintains that the good of the individual can be realized without reference to his free choice, to the unique and exclusive responsibility which he exercises in the, in the face of good or of evil. Which means that socialism robs man of his free moral decision-making, depending entirely on the state and those in charge of the civic order. Socialism essentially robs man of his free moral decision-making, coming to depend entirely on the state and those who are in charge of the civic order. This denial or removal of man's ability, this denial or removal of man's ability to decide for himself and name free decisions, ultimately, this denial or removal of man's ability to decide for himself and name free decisions, ultimately, is a rejection of his dignity and worth. This is the logical progression from an atheistic worldview that denies the dignity of every human person. You know, and this is evident now. We see this as young people lose a sense of God, lose a sense of religion, lose a sense of the divine. It becomes very attractive to have socialism as kind of like your principle here. You know, the government had all, all decisions for me. It's fine. It's good. Utopian society is coming. If there is no heaven to go to after death, you won't have it on earth, right? And the challenge then becomes when you begin to say that those that stand opposed to this progression toward an earthly heaven can be dealt in other ways, right? It is no surprise that where communism and socialism have taken root, there has been murders and deaths, executions of enormous numbers. Because those who choose to stand athwart the heaven on earth principle 
have been eliminated. John Paul II saw this. He grew up under it in Poland, experienced it there. It's suffocating, right? And it's very disturbing, very challenging, frankly, that our country, in some elements, some aspects, is kind of, you know, getting a little more attuned to this or warming up a little bit as a concern. But it stems from a lack of faith. It is not an accident that atheistic regimes go after the church first. I mean, the church affirms the person's dignity, the person's worth, the person's you know, first value to God. So we see how atheistic societies, the socialists, want the destruction of the church. You know, in some ways, guys, where we see it happening. But uh, three or four years ago, in Maryland, the uh, Maryland government adoption agencies were uh, allowing the adoption by same-sex couples. And the Catholic charities in Maryland said, we can't support this. We have to get out of the adoption industry if you guys do this. And one of the members there said, good, that's the goal. Have you guys out of the spine. Right? So we see there is a with the destruction of the churches. Of the churches. Oh, someone's mic is oh, on. Can you hear in the background? Okay. Now, this does not mean that the church is endorsing capitalism either. Okay. What the church endorses is what they call the free economy or the market economy. And what that means is it is the economic system recognizing the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and the result the means of production. So the market economy or free economy is economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and a resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity. Okay. Because most times, capitalism is defined as a system in which freedom in economic sector is not circumscribed in any kind of way, just kind of a brutal system that the poor suffer with. Now, thinking about the poor, the church talks about a preferential option for the poor. The preferential option for the poor. And the catechism Paragraph 2448 says this. 
This misery elicited the compassion of Christ the Savior, who willingly took it upon himself, identifying himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty, the object of a preferential love on the part of the church, which is her origin, and in spite of the failings of many of her members, has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation through numerous works of charity, which remain indispensable always and everywhere. Paragraph 2448. We have an obligation as a church to care for the poor, but stand the gospel itself. Okay. Questions or comments? I can see where this will be a very easy two sentence uh, definition. <laughs> Well, yeah, but, right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So the state exists to protect the rights of the person and the rights of the family. And the church operates under the principle here of what is called subsidiarity, subsidiarity. Now, subsidiarity simply means that a community of a higher order, subsidiarity means that a community of a higher order should not interfere, should not interfere in the, in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need rather support, should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity, help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. And the thing is, guys, even when it comes to like businesses, if there is a problem in the business between two people, you don't go to the CEO, right? You go to HR, they go to somebody else, they go to somebody else, and only if it's necessary to get to the highest levels of the company. The first basic level is important. And Jesus himself says this in the Gospels. Look, there's a problem between two people. First, amongst yourselves, try and figure it out. That can work in the third person involved. They bring it to a judge. That fails, they bring it to the church. So keep climbing the ladder of authority to, to adjudicate a decision. You don't go straight to the top and trying to figure out how to best handle 
a situation. Okay? Now, what's important here, though, is the federal government, or governments in general, do have an obligation to uh, allow the good of the society. For example, the government has social security, pensions, health insurance, paid family leave, um, all areas to help support the goods and the rights of the person. The government is not the enemy here. Subsidiarity is important, but the government itself isn't the enemy of this moral principle. All right. Additionally here is the importance of the civic value or civic virtue of patriotism. There was a time in schools when civics was taught. Once ago, one time I got up Galaxy far, far away, right? But now it isn't taught anymore. Because of it, we lose the sense of knowing where we came from, knowing where we're going. A proper appreciation of history, of patriotism, allows us of avoiding, on the one hand, the fallacy of my country, right or wrong, or seeing our country as the source of all evil. Right? There's a balance here, somewhere in the middle here, right? But it seems as if one of the great challenges now is we end up either saying that America is great, never had a problem, no, no, no issue, or that we are the source of all that is wrong in the world. Both those positions, of course, are incorrect. But to have the value of patriotism allows one to understand the mistakes of the past and their injustices, to seek in the current time a remedy for those injustices. We lose a sense of that, and it's to our detriment as a society. Questions, comments? Okay. Father. Yeah, Peter. I, I find it hard. The biggest problem is not to get politically involved. But we're not supposed to talk about politics. Church supposed to be religion, separation of religion and state. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I'm talking about, I'm an independent. Okay, yeah. People from the Republican Party, people from the Democratic Party do things that are not morally correct. And we're not supposed to say anything about it. I just don't get it. Well, our church has spoken out very strongly about the abortion issue, same-sex marriage, euthanasia. The bishops have been amazingly, thankfully, I think very um, strong on that. From the, from the pulpit, it is never wrong from the pulpit to talk about homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, um, with careful measured words, obviously. But I mean, I don't think there's anything from our point of view as Christians to not talk about these things. We should, we have to, frankly. Um, if we're not hearing, see, the people of God interpret it this way. If they're not hearing about it from the pulpit, it must not be important. 
Stuff in Paris, you never hear about abortion. That's a problem. Or gay marriage, that's a problem. But there's certain you know, things black and white, which is quite obvious, like you said, abortion. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I don't know, it's probably not appropriate to bring it up. But I'm just saying, like, for example, my pastor and I would have a conversation about elections. Mm-hmm. And he basically made a statement, which put me in the doghouse, because uh, I argued with him, that we always should vote for the Republican candidates, because they're pro-life. Mm. I mentioned to him that my understanding that the Roman Catholic Church has a list, a criteria that we're supposed to have answered for a candidate. Mm-hmm. To vote for. There's nobody mm-hmm. has this list available. It's always, <laughs> it's always like, oh, you vote. If you vote for the Democratic candidate, you're voting for the death party. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, to me, it's not black and white. Right. Well, here's the thing. So I think part of the difficulty, Peter, is that there, there are value, there are certain important issues, and there are issues where there's spe- some spectrum and some, you know, uh, debate. The problem is, in terms of politically speaking here, the Republican Party um, identifies itself more with, like, you know, anti-abortion, against same-sex marriage, against euthanasia. So some of the major life issues. Now, Democrats with immigration, healthcare, of that nature are doing a better job of it. But the problem becomes immigration and care for the poor are not the same moral species as abortion, euthanasia. And it's unfortunate that there's kind of this delineation now where it seems as if if you are a person voting for pro-life, voting for marriage, voting for, you know, against euthanasia, you get a pigeonhole. You know, it's a problem. You know, I go third party myself sometimes these days because nobody particularly um, matches my own personal views about society. Jesus was not a Republican or a Democrat, right? When we preach in the pulpit, we preach about policies, not politicians. So I, I know, Peter, it gets into a bit of an argument, a bit of back and forth debate, but the reality is... The main, you know, if we get look, if we get abortion wrong, I mean, if we if we don't realize the value of human life in those vulnerable stages, that to me, that to me, you know, I'm, I'm not just I'm not, I'm not a piece about that whole, whole idea. You know, it's challenging to me. It's difficult to me. But there are other issues I understand. But as men of the of clergy. We're going to be preaching and, and giving homilies one day and talking to people. It's important for us to realize that we have to endorse policies, never politicians. Does that make sense, everybody? Miss Huff. Yes, Father. Yeah, Lucas. I'm. I can't, Lucas. I can't hear you. You're breaking up. You're not. You're coming in. You're not coming in. Froze. Froze. Or is this? And they, they, and whatever he says is right, and he does no wrong. And I have the same problem. I couldn't pick either one. And uh, my my pastor wouldn't talk to me over the same issue until the election was over. <laughs> there are there is a lot of issues. 
there's a lot of issues in, in, in our own church. Sure. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. So we have we have a lot of a lot of um, challenges that currently we're facing, you know, as um, as Catholics in the current climate of that which we find ourselves. Um, it's going to be a very interesting experience moving ahead here, which you know is we'll see. Other comments or questions about any of this stuff? The good civics lesson here tonight. Father, to, to go back, we could just admit it to the death penalty. Yeah, okay, George, yeah. I, I got my second wind. Uh, <laughs> Good. I, it, it's, it's, just, um, it's just amazing to me how, for example, in the federal system right now, we haven't executed anybody in 17 years in the federal system. Mm-hmm. And the president and the AG decided all of a sudden that we're going to start executing people. Right. We've executed five already, and we've got five on tap for the next couple of months, including two this week. And in my church, where I am, Catholics are defending that, saying this is God's way of, of dealing with people. Uh, it just blows me away. Just blows mm-hmm. me away. Mm-hmm. Well, again, George, you know, it's important to realize that you had to come to a, to a conversion yourself about this. So it's very important for us to realize that people may be saying things that we said at one point in our journey. And we can help them maybe to come to a better realization of this. But to realize that, hey, you know what, three or four years ago, I was saying the same thing here. So it helps us. I understand that kind of visceral reaction. Like, why are you saying this? This is crazy. Then it becomes like, well, this only a few years ago myself, having to help them maybe to come to where I am now. And that realization of Paul, Paul had a great line, I think it's in, in Romans. Paul says, be patient with the scruples of those whose faith is weak. And it's very important for us to be aware of that. You know, as men who are pursuing the academic ordination as a priest, our path on the journey, presumably, is further along other people. It's important for us to realize that they're still coming to where we've already passed through. And that idea of patience with them in their journey, where they are, to help them come, is more important than saying, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? You know? which is kind of the visceral reaction we have. And we don't want to tell them that. But we know that it's not going to be doing anybody any good. Our reaction is going to be that way. But it helps. So George, I, I hear you, man. Well, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I'm just sharing that among us 21 or Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. In this yeah. room. But no, I, I agree a thousand percent. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's, well, I, I agree. Yeah, I no, I get you. No, I, yeah, sure. Anybody else want to chime in or we can we move on? All right, you asked for it. So the next topic is the civic obligation of paying taxes. Oh boy. I'm sorry, guys. Hey. <laughs> the church is the wrong one. So there is, obviously. <laughs> okay. Well, there is, sure there is. Jesus says in the Gospels. Yeah, I know. And the idea okay. is that our taxes should go to helping the government do the right thing. The challenge is oh, it doesn't quite go in those directions, which is a um, unfortunate reality. In fact, you know, it may it may happen this year 
with a Hyde Amendment, which currently does not allow the taxpayer money to fund abortion, oh, may have been repealed in the House, which will allow then federal tax money to fund abortion, which would be a real shame. But, you know, part of the reality of these things. And, and the paying taxes works under the heading of the tribute of justice, society and the person. Because again, at, at the heart of it, it should be where the money we're giving in taxes is helping paying for our civic services, for roads, for infrastructure, for defense, for the environment, for all these things. But oftentimes it is um, frittered away on other things. And that's an unfortunate reality what we're dealing with right now. In death penalty. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Rock. Yeah. 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 Yep. Now, when it comes to even in terms of um, elected officials and how they vote on things, you know, it's important that somebody in, in political authority does their best to, to advance legislation which will help to forward the best possible um, reality for the common good. It doesn't always work that way, but they should try and live their faith in the public square as representatives of, uh, of the people. All right. Then we get to the issue of the environment. This also is an issue of social ethics as well. Now, there's no void here in regard to this. First, is that nature is simply man to manipulate it and take care of it and just kind of totally dominate nature. That's the first false view. The second is that we have to honor nature as if it were itself a god, which of course is pantheism and not accurate. But here's the thing. There are those today who see humanity as the enemy of the environment. In the 18th century, a man named Malthus believed that at some point, population of the earth was going to overrun the resources that were available. So Malthus said, we have to do everything we can to limit having children. If you don't do this, eventually we're going to might end up running out of resources. There are some today in the world known as Neo-Malthusians. And Neo-Malthusians believe the same principle two cent over two centuries later. And the problem is this has caused some serious demographic issues. Right now in the, in the U.S., there is approximately like 2.5 children born to a, a woman in her lifetime. Okay? There are currently 3.3 people, young people working for every one person on Social Security. In 20 years, it's going to be you cannot sustain that. <clears throat> when FDR first started Social Security, it was nine people 
working for everyone in Social Security. And most didn't live to receive the check. We forget, in 1900, the average life expectancy across the world was 30. 30. Now, in Jesus' time, it was 30. So for 2,000 years, it didn't change. But over the last century, with the incredible advancements of medicine, surgeries, antibiotics, microbiology, all of this stuff, it is now 70, more than doubled. Incredible. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's challenging when we're replacing the number of people with the number that are aging, and it's going to cause serious problems. Actually, it already is causing serious problems in China and in India. Both of them have policies that were very supportive toward having men, male children, not female children. So right now in China, there's 118 men for every 100 women. In India, there's 108 men for every 100 women. So what does this mean? It means we have a serious bride crisis, right? And the problem is, if you have a society where young men are not getting married, you're asking for problems. Nothing matures a man as fast as a wife and children. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now. That's a good word to describe him. As a celibate. As a celibate. As a celibate. <laughs> I have many children. And my bride is at church. So I'm not immune either from this, all right? <laughs> but but it was short a man, Peter. So, will you yeah. pick up that college tuition, Father? <laughs> What's that, Chris? Will you pay for that college tuition, Father? No, I will not. Listen, man, I'm just I'm just doing my thing, all right? I'm just doing my food. So, <laughs> so no, the challenge though, in no seriousness, is that what's gonna happen? in these cultures when men reach marriage age and no women are around to get married to. I mean, society is gonna be a major problem for those societies. I'm not sure how they're gonna deal with it, but uh, I don't know. And in Europe, it's kind of, that's even, it's even worse than here in the States. It's funny, in the end of the Roman Empire, in the fourth century, fifth century, they were paying people to have children to help replace the society demographically. Right now, in Italy, they're paying people to have children to replace the population. So here we go, man. There to now, little has changed in terms of what we're dealing with. And I really, and the, and the, but the idea behind it is that the resources of the earth are not going to be able to sustain the population. But again, we've been saying this for like 300 years and nothing has ever happened. Thank God we haven't reached that point. In fact, in fact, across the world, life expectancies have gone up. If mortality rates have gone down, everywhere, life is better, except for sub-Saharan Africa, where the warlords control most of those regions. And when aid is given to them, the money ends up in the hands of the warlords instead of the hands 
of the people. So across the board, life is better than it was 100 years ago, except in parts of the world where corruption, unfortunately, has not allowed the resources to get to those most in need of those resources. But my thought is technology. Technology will help to make the environment better, to improve our lot. Think about recycling, how much that has helped out with paper, with cans, with, you know, landfills not being as filled as it used to be. We have the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. We have all of those things. Uh, wind turbine, solar power, which has become a major thing now. I mean, a lot of, a lot of businesses, homes, parishes even, use solar panels now. Draws money down from, from the uh, power grid. I am a small part in this world trying to help. So I, either in a COVID-induced insanity or whatever, uh, this past summer, bought a new car. And I bought a, Honda, a Hyundai Kona electric, fully electric, 100% electric. I love it. It's great. And I'm just going to the gas station at all. But it, um, and it says it's better for the environment. So, yeah, so all these things, all these are the ways in which you can improve the environment without compromising the nature of the world or the nature of world economies. And the problem is this. The biggest polluters are those nations like India, like China, because fossil fuels are cheap. They're cheap to use. So if we say that those have to get on board and use renewable energy, solar, wind, they can't. They can't. It's a problem for them. So that becomes now a major issue where, yeah, in the West, in wealthy nations, they can't afford to invest in those programs. It's harder in poor nations to do that because the infrastructure just isn't there to allow it. So that's gonna be a major issue moving forward is making renewable energy cheaper, more effective, and more available. But again, Remember, go ahead, Peter. Issue to Paris, uh, to climate. Paris, yeah, yeah. Why we yeah. move from it because it hurt more developed countries than the undeveloped countries. Right. The right. Number one polluter is China. Right. And yeah. Now China, is, I don't know if you would refer to them as a poor country anymore. They're our main competitor. Right. But they, sure. they want pollution, but they are embracing electronic vehicles because mm -hmm. the air quality in China is right. so poor. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. So even just the, the reality of the damage is doing to humanity, health is a situation that's you know being addressed in those, in those areas. But even like in New York, which, for example, the Hudson River is the cleanest it's been in 112 years. Why? Because they found that oysters are naturally purifying organisms, and they've used thousands upon thousands of them to purify the water in the Hudson. Now, I would not drink water from the Hudson or eat a fish called the Hudson, but it's better than it was a century ago, which is a good sign, which is a good sign. There are certainly things that are being used technologically to help improve a lot with the environment and in those different uh, situations and areas, okay?
Questions, comments, any of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah, Bob. Comment about the uh, Social Security. Back yeah. in 1991, my dad lost his job. So he filed for early Social Security when he turned 62. By the yeah. time he turned 65, he already got back everything he paid into the system. Wow. So it's not that, so it's not sustainable at, by any means. It was a, yeah. it was this quick fix for the for the uh, Great Depression, but it was not meant to last since 2020. Well, it's going to be well. We're facing serious budget crisis, right? With, with all this, so what's going to happen is if it does continue, it's going to mean higher taxes yeah. and lower benefits. They, they already increased the taxes every year the last few years, but it's still not enough money because, as you mentioned, Father. There's less people working on the books versus collecting benefits. Plus, the life expectancy is over 70 now. Plus, they're taking the money because of the federal deficit. They're taking money from Social Security to pay for other programs. Yeah. Oh, there there is no money for Social Security. It's it's a it's just a payment scheme. It's just a payment scheme. It's just money coming in against money coming out. By the way, Father, I I just posted in the chat a picture leaving. That's leaving church at one o'clock on a Sunday in Beijing, and that's the air, typical air quality in Beijing. That's wow, Dick. Yeah, that, that, that's a typical day in Beijing. It's awful. That's terrifying to see what the air quality is like in that part of the world, huh? Yeah. Good lord, wow. That's why they've been wearing masks for years. That's right. Yeah, they've got it down. Yeah, I don't know if it helps. Yeah, wow. And and well. Yeah. Also, only one out of six drivers in China own a car. Is that right? I know Yes. That. Wow. You they couldn't they, tell if you're if you couldn't tell a rush shower. I'll tell you that. Okay. The problem is not the cars; it's the uh, the factories. Yeah, it's the factories. That's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> if the factories are closed for any reason, like for example, if if uh, Foreign dignitaries are coming in and are having a big event. They close the factories. It's beautiful. Literally clear skies. I can show you sure. pictures from, I can show you pictures of two days after that that are clear as clear blue skies. Wow. But that's the typical day. It's every day. When they had the Olympics there, they shut down all the things beforehand for the air quality to get better. Right. Yep. And they even seeded the clouds so that they get more rain to clear the, clear the skies. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Holy cow. If, if yeah. you can do it, they'll do it. I'll bet. Oh, it sounds that way to me. Yeah. Wow. Anybody else? No. All right, Jens, this kind of puts a bow on it for the, uh, for the semester. It has been a lot of fun teaching. Not in person, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but I've been doing this class immensely. Um, hope you have too. Yes. And really, the idea has been from day one to hopefully be able to apply these principles, these teachings to our life in ministry as we begin to go out into the world in two years, please God, as, as deacons of the church, to have the tech, not to have the tools to be able to do this and do it effectively. So with the final exams, as you, as you finish them, send them in my way, I'll grade them. And back to you within a day or two of, of the uh, of getting the email, and uh, the papers are due next uh, next Monday, as you know, the 14th. Um, otherwise, it's been a pleasure. 
And I'll see you guys hopefully in person at some point in the very near future. Yeah, you can see how tall you are, actually. You, <laughs> you Father Chris. <laughs> You're hovering over us. Well, no that's the idea, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right, guys. Well, it's been a lot of difficult times. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, All right. Thank you. Learned a lot. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Woof, woof, woof. 